Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. And on this week's show, we return to the topic of hip-hop on the radio. While on Radio Survivor, we typically focus on non-commercial radio like college and community stations, today we'll be looking at why certain types of commercial radio stations were important to the growth of hip-hop. Our guest, Amy Coddington, is assistant professor in the Department of Music at Amherst College. Welcome to Radio Survivor, Amy. Thanks. So pleased to be here. So your current research is looking at the history of how hip-hop gained mainstream acceptance, and specifically at why radio is important to that story. I'd love to start by talking about what drew you to radio in particular as the focus of your project. Sure. So um, my project started uh, as my dissertation, um, and I was really interested in just charting how pop music sound had changed as a result of hip hop over the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years. And, you know, it was pretty obvious to me this was, I don't know, probably 10 years ago at this point, right? Like that, that pop music was hip hop and that pop had really taken on the sounds of hip hop and the aesthetics of hip hop. But no one had really talked about it. Anyway, so I was like listening to music, talking to my advisor at the time. And what he said was he was just like, you need to go back and like read some stuff. So what I did was I just went back into um, the Billboard archives um, and reading Billboard magazine. I just found so much about the radio that really hadn't been discussed. So in my work, I talk a lot about the sort of creation of new formats um, that lead that lead to the rise of hip hop on the radio, but also um, academics really just don't talk that much about the role of programmers and advertisers on how music becomes popular. So I think it's like pretty blatantly obvious to anyone who listened listens or listened to the radio that like radio stations play a big role in what becomes popular, and yet it just it seems like a sort of underdeveloped topic in academic work on music. So. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what I, I just, you know, I found this like kind of gem in the archives and I've been building the project ever since then. It's, yeah, that's so interesting. And, and that's sort of, you know, on our show too, we, we tend to talk less about that, um, economic aspect of radio, the commercial aspect. And there is so much, um, there's so much that's going into that. That's very, uh, specific and particular and plotted out right. and researched and and doesn't so I, and, and we here on Radio Survivor we love non-commercial community radio and college radio but the work that happens in one sphere doesn't it's not a vacuum people are listening to each other and the the way that college radio sounds and non-commercial radio sounds and the way that commercial radio sounds there's a relationship between them throughout the decades and so we love we it's nice to pay attention to, to what was happening in commercial radio in parts of history that we care about. And those formats certainly make their way to, I don't know, I mean, the trajectory, it, it goes back and forth, but but you see, we'll talk more about this later in our conversation, but you see formats on non-commercial stations as well that are, you know, just as tightly developed as what you see on commercial radio. So I'm, I'm excited about your work. And and so I want to start um, by by mentioning that on Radio Survivor, we've done a few episodes talking about hip-hop radio history in the context of college and community radio stations and and how those were some of the first radio stations that were playing hip-hop. And, and Amy, I just wanted to see if you could touch on that a little bit before we move on into how how hip-hop made its way to commercial radio. 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I am no expert on this by any means, and you all have done some great episodes about this. So please check those out if you haven't. But um, so, yeah, hip hop really gets its start on non-commercial radio stations, college and community stations. Uh, by far the most famous of these is WHBI broadcasting out of New York um, with the famous DJ Mr. Magic, um, who at first was playing kind of a disco funk show, but started incorporating hip hop tracks as early as 1979, 1978, sometime in there. The thing about this is, is that as Mr. Magic is playing some rap songs, right, there aren't a ton on record. Um, so you actually, you know, you, you, um, many of these are sort of pre-recorded tapes that are being played on the air of live shows. Um, but as hip hop starts being played on these stations, it's also being played on commercial radio stations. So Mr. Magic is playing Rapper's Delight and everybody else in town is also playing Rapper's Delight in the beginning of 1980. Um, so there's this kind of dual history of hip hop on the radio where non-commercial stations are are operating in certain ways and interested in, um, you know, in in really developing community relations in a different way than commercial radio stations are. Um, and so across the nation by the early 1980s, 1982, 1983 is usually the dates that are thrown around. There's plenty of kind of hip hop mix shows at various college or community radio stations. Um, and then like probably the most important hip-hop radio station uh, during the mid-1980s is actually a commercial radio station in L.A. called KDAY, um, which was, they, it's, it's, they, eh, it's, a, it's a little fuzzy about how much hip-hop was actually being played on that station during the mid-1980s. Um, the, you know, the, the D, one of their DJs, Greg Mack, um, said that basically, like, this station was never intended to be a rap station, but they played a lot of rap during those years. Anyway, so there's, I think that the, the thing to say is that there's hip-hop being played on commercial radio stations throughout the 1980s, not a lot of it, um, happy to talk about that more, and there's hip-hop being played on non-commercial radio stations. And there's some crossover between the two, right? So, um Individual rap shows were broadcast on commercial radio stations like Mr. Magic's show. So Mr. Magic goes from being on a community radio station to um, moving to WBLS in New York in May 1982. That's the number one station in, in the New York area for most of the early 1980s. Um, it's an urban station. And his, um, his show at that time was called Mr. Magic's Rap Attack. Um, so you have these moments of sort of Com uh, non-commercial stations creating shows that then become influential on commercial radio. Yeah. And, and so, oh, there's so many interesting things in what you just said there. Um, I, I think I need to mention, we did an episode about the Eclipse show on KGNU that started um, at that community radio station in Boulder in 1978. And that initially built itself as an alternative black radio show. So they were playing soul and funk and early hip hop quiet storm, on that show. And the then it event storm genre. Yeah. Of, of soul music. <laughs> right. And, and then it eventually became, you know, more of a hip hop focused show. And, and so as you're describing that, um, that some of these sounds are on commercial radio and non-commercial radio and, and that they're on a variety 
of types of stations, it makes a lot of sense to me that that some of these early hip hop shows on non-commercial radio might have been more fluid as far as the genres that they were playing, you know, and clearly it was a developing genre too. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, you can, uh, there, there's far more kind of flexibility on non-commercial radio stations to just have that, you know, the fluid genre boundaries, right? Whereas a commercial radio station is really defined by trying to keep within a certain sound parameter. And and the other, I mean, the other thing you were mentioning was that some of these shows might have, like a specific show may have started on a college or community station and then was picked up by commercial radio. And, and so often we think about, you know, from a college radio lens, you might think about crossover in the respect of something has crossed over like a band an artist has crossed over from you know REM crossed over from from college radio to commercial radio um so so maybe talk a little bit more about that I mean you're saying it's a little more complicated than maybe it was in my mind um but talk about this idea of crossing over and how that was working as far as non-commercial and commercial radio and shows actually moving or artists moving from one place to the other? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that if you paint in really broad strokes that uh, hip-hop shows on non-commercial radio stations had very little impact on the commercial radio industry broadly, right? So I just want to say that when we talk about Mr. Magic, you know, switching from a non-commercial radio station to a commercial radio station, that's not happening everywhere, certainly. And it's not happening with everyone. Um, And so even, and I think one of the important things to note is that even when a a hip-hop mix show is played in the early 80s on commercial radio stations, it has also very little impact on the commercial radio industry broadly. This is because commercial radio industry uh, operates, I think it's just fair to say like sort of in a, in there's both informal and formal networks of communication about how like people gain uh, knowledge about genres and songs and new sounds and all that. Um, when a mix show occurs on a commercial radio station, in its essence, it's really about kind of containing that show to a certain certain type of time of day and to a certain type of audience. So when Mr. Magic appears on WBLS, he's not being played at drive time, right? When um, you have kind of older audiences tuning in, instead, it, um, his show is occurring at night. Um, so because it's occurring at night and because it's being um, hosted by someone who's not staff on the radio station in the same way that many DJs are full-time, were full-time staff at these radio stations, um, they're not, you know, the, the songs are not crossing over from these shows to all-day playlists very often in the early 1980s. Instead, what's happening most of the time is that record companies are promoting to non-commercial and commercial stations at the same time. And if the commercial stations feel like the right, the rap song matches their sound enough, right? So Curtis Blow is a great example of someone who Black radio stations actually played a um, Black-oriented radio stations played a fair amount of Curtis Blow in the early 1980s, and that's because his sound was really aimed at their audiences. 
Um, so there's there's a push from record companies in the early 1980s to market kind of to all three of these or two of the, you know, right to non-commercial and commercial radio stations. And um, and so that marketing is happening simultaneously. Whether there's crossover, right, whether a DJ is listening to the hottest mix show, absolutely that's happening. Um, this is one of those uh, informal methods of communication, but they're not as well documented for sure. I, it's so interesting that you're talking about these very specific shows that are airing at night on a commercial radio station. And um, that I think that's an important aspect to it. And, and maybe people who aren't listening to a lot of commercial radio might not realize that that was happening on the weekends, that you might have these specialty shows that are you know aimed at a niche audience. Um, so what was the expectation of a commercial radio station, um, you know, when they, when they put things on, on the weekend at night, who, what was the goal with, with having say a hip hop show or a mix show, um, on a Sunday night? Yeah, the goal is to get, right, is to get the huge amount of young listeners that are interested in hip hop to listen to their station, right? So they're interested in gaining large numbers of audiences, uh, like large numbers of young listeners without alienating older audiences who they were pretty concerned. Um, this is true throughout the 1980s, 1990s into today, right? The idea that older audiences aren't as interested in hip hop as younger audiences. And so... Possibly, um, by playing I'm, things really late, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna de-euphemize not as interested and say downright hostile was also a possibility. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yep. Um, uh, and I mean, part of this is that programmers. I mean, some adults are downright hostile to you know hip hop, and many adults simply didn't. I think one of the things that's important to note is many adults didn't just they just didn't know. Right, they didn't have any sense of like what the genre sounded like. There's great polls that happen throughout the late 1980s and into the early 1990s about like actually what is hip hop, right? They're like, what? How would you how would you characterize this band or this album? You know, this band or this artist? And you know, it's like five percent of the people that were interviewed in one study thought the new kids on the block was a rap group, right? So it's like, you really have this sense that no one, no one totally understands what rap really is at the time. So downright hostile, absolutely. Question mark, absolutely. And then, okay, so younger audiences, um, basically, to get back to the question, sorry, I, that was a big tangent there, went into new kids on the block territory, but here we are. <laughs> um, to get back to the question, right? So, so older audience, uh, radio stations don't think, weren't thinking that older audiences were listening Sunday night at, you know, 1 a.m. So they didn't need to worry about alienating those listeners. And I know format is going to be really important to this story. And, and so we're going to be talking about the first commercial radio stations that are playing hip hop. Um, so maybe let's start and just sort of lay the groundwork for um, the role of format in commercial radio as, as a backdrop to understanding when hip hop was first played and where. Yeah. So format formatting is the system of organization of the commercial radio industry. So regardless of where you are in the country in the 1980s, if you flip your radio on, you're going to hear certain types of stations, country, top 40, 
Black-oriented stations, adult contemporary stations, et cetera, et cetera, right? So those are each radio formats. And formats basically are a way for the radio industry to... Um, to connect an audience to a certain type of music in order to sell that audience to advertisers. Music in the commercial radio industry is really thought of as kind of a tool to attract certain types of audiences and not other types of audiences. So to go back to the question we were just talking about, right? So if you play rap, that's a tool to get young audiences and not older audiences. That music splits these audiences into, or splits the local radio audience into defined groups that then you can sell to advertisers. And that's the radio industry's business model. Um, it- go ahead. Oh, and well, and you mentioned um, black-oriented stations, and I know, I know that your work is is very interested in radio as being sort of this racial project, um, and so this most certainly has intersections with where rap is getting played. Um, so, could you maybe talk a little bit about the black-oriented stations or the urban format, and if they were receptive to hip hop? Sure, yes. Yeah. So during the 19, late 1970s and into the 1980s, Black-oriented radio is going through a pretty substantial change in the way that they operate their stations. So um, towards the beginning of this era, Black-oriented stations, which are at that time called Black stations, um, are marketing, they're trying to attract an age-diverse audience of mostly Black listeners, but also an, um, a kind of wide, diverse group of listeners interested in listening to music, mostly by Black artists. Throughout the 1980s, there's a big trend towards trying to attract more lucrative audiences, audiences that advertisers are more interested in. And I think the easy way to say this is that the the audience that advertisers like the best throughout the 1980s are adult white women who were thought of as controlling household income, flexible enough to hear about a new brand of toothpaste on the radio and go out and try it, and also interested in buying big uh, ticket items, so things like washing machines, cars, that sort of thing. Um, Throughout the 1980s, Black-oriented radio is going to, is is trying to attract more listeners like adult white women. So whether it's adult Black listeners or also white listeners, they're trying to shift their music to try and get those types of listeners. This is one of the big reasons why rap isn't played on Black radio in the early 1980s and throughout the 1980s, really, mm-hmm. is because these stations are moving away from the audiences that are associated with hip-hop. And Amy, uh, Amy Connington, can you give us a, a a clean example of a of a black artist with white with a white lady crossover appeal that would make these advertisers happy? Is this like a? I'm gonna guess, but I don't want to guess. I'll guess. I, I will say Lionel um, Richie. That's Lionel. exactly who I was gonna throw out. Absolutely, okay, yeah. Lionel Richie is oftentimes thought of as the kind of like the crossover artist of that of the 1980s. Um, particularly because he was, I mean, it's not just that record companies were like, oh my gosh, Lionel, you need to make music for white audiences, or the radio stations were like, we want music for white audiences, but also because Lionel Richie actually 
really quite wanted to make music for white audiences and a more diverse audience is probably the, the better way to say it. Right, and actually, now that I'm thinking about this, I, we recently, when Prince died, I learned a lot more about Prince's legacy and life in radio. And he had the same thing in his mind that he wanted to, you know, remain truly authentic to play black music that black people loved and never betray those audiences, but also at the same time make black music that white people could love and that was why uh purple rain he like crafted purple rain intentionally apparently he listened to um that pop country song like a rock over and over again and then created a a, a minneapolis soulful version of of this cunt of this white people music um yeah i guess it's important just to say that like it's a huge part of the, the american cultural history like the 20th century that there was there were decades where um, black music and white music was was um, was a lot more walled off. You know, like you had to be a real weird white, like hipster nerd to go and buy black records. You know, in the nineteen fifties, say it's a, sort of like it's why jazz music was so cool for white kids at that time because they had to like leave one part of town and go to another part of town to get the records. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is like key to the way that I think about commercial radio is that commercial radio is a big way that this walling off happens, right? So because commercial radio stations want to play certain types of music to get certain types of audiences, they're actively sort of making these connections between musical styles and audiences, largely in a way that is entirely based on race. Um, and so for me, right, I think about the radio as an active producer about of the way that we think about race, um, relying on work by Michael Omi and Howard Winnett, who sort of think about the way that uh, race is created through what they term racial projects, sort of social structures that organize the world um, and help us make sense of people in the world in a racial way. And that and that makes me think a bit about, um, you know, you're talking about some of these black stations and urban stations in the early days. And were those owned? Did those have black owners? Were they run by black people? Or, you know, what was what were the economics of all of that? Certainly. I mean, some stations uh, had black ownership, but many, many do not. Right. So um, black uh, black oriented radio stations are not not always owned by black owners. Yeah, certainly not. So now, you know, so thinking about this uh, as a backdrop, um, you know, Amy Connington, you've talked about how some of the first stations that were playing rap and hip hop, it might have been a commercial radio, you know, in addition to non-commercial stations, it might have been commercial stations playing it, maybe, you know, a one-off show. Um, when did that start to shift? When did you start to see more rap and hip hop kind of throughout the schedule? And what kinds of stations were were bringing hip hop in, you know, to more than just a Sunday night mix show? Yeah, so I really kind of time, I, I like to give a start date to this thing. And that start date for me is 1986. So in 1986, a new station in Los Angeles kind of pops out of the woodwork that is playing music aimed at a multicultural audience. Um, and they're playing basically music that they think that um, 
sort of is halfway in between the urban format and the top 40 format. And it's aimed at a real coalition audience in LA of um, black listeners, white listeners, and Latinx listeners. And this is, this station is thought of in 1986 as this huge deal. It is thought of as the first station to ever do this. This is absolutely not true. Urban stations, just to just say, say it incredibly bluntly, have always been trying for this same sort of diverse audience. But this station, K-Power, Power 106 in LA, um, is celebrated because it's kind of the first station that is trying to fit within Top 40 while still having a diverse audience. Top 40, for the most part, in the 1980s is thought of as having a primarily white audience. It's thought of as appealing to uh, white moms and their kids, right? It's this kind of multi... Uh, it It's a age-diverse audience, but it's mostly all white. And uh, K-Power is one of the first stations in the country to acknowledge the diversity of their local community and um, create a station based on appealing to that diverse audience. Um, K-Power, for most of the late 1980s, does not play a lot of hip-hop. Rather, what it does is it influences stations uh, or people all over the country to start similar stations. And those stations are the first places where hip hop is played all day um, because it's the one style of music in particular that uh, uh, programmers believe appeals to their coalition audience. So it appeals evenly to their black, white, and Latinx audience members in ways that R&B doesn't, that pop doesn't, or that freestyle doesn't as well. So um, K-Power in 19, coming around in, um, K-Power beginning in 1986 is the beginning of these types of stations, which at the time are called crossover stations. Now they're called rhythmic or rhythmic contemporary stations. Um, but that, you know, that, that station sort of brings about a change in the radio industry. Yeah. What was Amy Connington, what was the response to this radio station that was, and, and how did it sound different from other stations at the time? So the response by the radio industry is like complete confusion. There's this whole hubbub about whether or not the station should be counted as a top 40 station or a urban station, right? So whether it should report to the pop charts in these radio trade journals or should report to the black charts in these radio journals. Yeah, because um, chart, charts are so right. important. And I just, charts you know, are so just for fun. It, it sounds so silly in a way, but it's right. very important, just, right? It's There's economy. Just for fun, I googled crossover hits of 1986, and I get Run DMC, I get the Beastie Boys. I could see how it might break people's you know, business brains to try to figure out which box to put them in if, if you know, yeah. if they're getting wider and wider yeah, acceptance. And- Exactly. And for the radio industry, right, the radio industry is really interested in trying to create certain stations that appeal to a certain demographic, right? And this is just a new idea. It's a new demographic idea that comes, or a new demographic to appeal to, and they don't really know how to handle it. Power 106 for, in, you know, for it, 
to them, they really don't want to be counted as an urban station because that will decrease the rates that they can ask for from advertisers. So it's really important to them to be called a top 40 station. And eventually what the trade magazines do, Billboard in particular, just creates a whole new category for these stations rather than trying to box them into either urban or top 40. They call them crossover stations. Um, yeah. And so what were they playing? Oh, yeah. So crossover stations are playing this kind of mix of mostly upbeat dance music. So things like Madonna, they're playing freestyle, which is this dance style that comes out of the same communities as hip hop was birthed in, but is far more melodic and singy. Um, they're playing R&B and they're playing like a bunch of songs that you might imagine that you'd hear in the club, but you wouldn't hear on the radio. Um, and then throughout the 19, the late 1980s, you're going to start, you start hearing more and more hip hop on these stations because hip hop is seen as kind of, um, music that'll appeal to all of these, to this, this multi-cultural audience. That mostly includes things like Young MC, MC Hammer, Vanilla Ice, you know, that sort of style of pop hip hop, not so much the stuff that you would hear on college radio stations, right? I'm not sure a college radio station, you'd actually hear Vanilla Ice on there, but by 1990, you're certainly hearing him on crossover stations. And I mean, it's, I love that this example is in LA and that um, in Los Angeles, that they're paying attention to the Latinx community. And is that represented by Latinx artists on the playlist at the time in the 80s? Yes. I mean, so many freestyle artists are come are Latinx, come out of Latinx communities. Um, but most rappers that are being played on crossovers on these crossover stations are black artists. So so this crossover format that you're describing um, is connected with top 40 and why, and, and I know that you're very interested in top 40 and top 40 being important to consider when you're looking at the history of hip hop or when you're looking at music and, and top 40 radio might be something that, um, that people turn their noses up as, as an area of, of scholarly interest. Um, can you explain a bit more why, why top 40 is important to look at? Sure. So I think about top 40 as sort of dictating the boundaries of what people think of as mainstream music, which is kind of this like, I mean, the mainstream is this concept that no one actually wants to define because it's actually, quite frankly, too hard to define. Right. But that the the music that most people in America have heard or listened to, right? The things that if you, you know, threw out the name Adele, you'd be like, oh yeah, Adele's probably mainstream because everyone's heard of her, right? Um, in the 1980s, mainstream really was kind of, was basically aligned with the music that was in the top 40, um, was on the top 40 format uh, because the radio, the, the record companies thought about the radio stations that way, right? So there's this kind of um, convergence of imagining Top 40 to be the thing that appeals to everybody and radio record companies trying to make music that appeals to everybody and that's what's being played on Top 40. So for me, Top 40, or Top 40 is this kind of 
It's a, maybe a stand-in for a concept of the mainstream. I want to be really clear here to say that this idea of the mainstream is very, very white. Um, so as I said before, Top 40 Radio, most of these stations in the 1980s are trying to appeal to white women and white teenagers. Um, and so the boundaries of inclusion for Black artists are dictated by these playlists and dictated by programmers' willingness to kind of allow new music, whatever that might be, onto into this mainstream. And I think that that question of where hip-hop falls, right, is it inside the mainstream or is it outside the mainstream? I like to think of hip-hop as very much both of those things um, at the same time throughout this whole period, well, throughout, you know, the late 80s and on, um, that kind of question of how programmers are like imagining that boundary is really interesting to me. Yeah, that um, that brings to mind something that that Eric and I that we were talking about before before the radio show today about MTV and and MTV was certainly a place where you know they they helped to dictate taste and there were a lot of debates about who was being played on MTV and who wasn't being played. And a lot of black artists were excluded from MTV. Right. There's a really great, so maybe talk about how that there's a really great clip of David Bowie in the eighties confronting, uh, maybe, you know, confronting, I think he's confronting someone on the air on MTV, asking the question on everyone's mind behind the scenes, uh, in the music community is why is MTV only playing all these white audi- artists when, you know, David Bowie gets you know, he he represented that question uh, really well as a white person at that moment. Where where are the black artists on MTV? My, uh, I just want to add my MTV anecdote from my youth. I remember when Fresh Prince of Fresh Prince. I was going to say Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Where Fresh Prince and uh, when that album prior to the television program was a huge hit in the nation, and uh, MTV was giving uh, them their MTV Music Award, but it was. Uh, early in the day, before the televised MTV Music Awards were occurring, they got their award off screen uh, at that moment in the in the history of hip hop and MTV. That's that's how important uh, hip hop was to MTV at that time. It was like an afterthought, which seems crazy, you know, if you were watching MTV in the nineties. It was wall to wall hip hop. Yeah, so, I mean, MTV in the early 1980s is basically playing no music by Black artists. Um, they claim that this is because they are modeling their their uh, their playlists off of rock stations, right? So they're really kind of saying, well, if rock stations don't have to play Black artists, why do we have to play any Black artists? As MTV becomes more sort of centrist in their programming, they start playing more Black artists, certainly. One of the things I like to think about when I'm thinking about the 80s is the difference between MTV and the radio, because I think this is something that people don't really mention all that often. So MTV is something that, right, it's a station that you needed cable to access. Um, And so when MTV starts playing hip hop in the late 1980s, primarily on their show, Yo! MTV Raps. um, One weird show that was hard to, just like the, you know, just like the Mr. Magic uh, show you were mentioning earlier in the episode that's on Sunday nights, like Yo! MTV Raps was on its own little like far away. Yeah, absolutely. And 
and you have to pay for it, right? And right. most people, right, if you think about the people who have the income to pay for additional cable programming, that's a different type of person than you might imagine hip hop's audience being. Um, radio, on the other hand, has this kind of like infinite reach. It's not appealing to everybody. Not everyone is listening to every type of station. But it, for me, the thing I love about radio is there's sort of this utopian idea that like, oh, if we do it right, we might get the whole city to listen, right? And so hip hop appearing on the radio for me is this kind of like unbelievable feat because it's all of a sudden imagined to be um, relevant to everybody and acceptable to everybody. Uh, so... I mean, one anecdote I like to throw out there is that in, you know, when Rapper's Delight comes around in 1979, um, Frankie Crocker, the biggest DJ on WBLS in New York City, the number one station there, says he doesn't want to play it because it's too black to be played on his black-oriented station. A full decade later, right, we have hip-hop being played on nearly every top 40 station across the country, thanks to the influence of these crossover stations, um, and that transformation for me is a really interesting, brings up interesting questions about inclusion, but then also the, I would say the, um, the ill effects of what happens when you commodify something that much. Yeah. So there's a whole lot going on in there with what you just laid out. Um, you know, you've talked about these crossover stations that are playing hip hop in the early days and then and then a whole lot happens because eventually you have hip hop on top 40 stations so what happens in those intervening years um and and why is top 40 why do they become interested in hip hop um i i know you look at how the music changes too that that's part of the story yeah so Top 40 starts playing hip-hop because crossover stations demonstrate to them that hip-hop is popular, right? So top 40 stations at some point really can't not play it. Um, this is about in, let's say, 1990. Um, you have MC Hammer, you know, rising to the top of the charts, selling all these. He right, sits at the number one and number two position on the Billboard album chart for longer than anyone since the mono and stereo charts have been combined, right, like in the mid 1950s or 60s. I kind of forget which what year <laughs> exactly. Right. So MC Hammer is like unbelievably popular and top 40 stations by that point kind of have to play it because they're supposed to be playing the most popular music in the country. Um, yeah, I might, I just have so, to add that M MTV played that music video constantly when it was over branded. and over yeah, so and over. We've, yes. We've, 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 we've had the, we've hit the inflection point where now uh, MC hammer is on MTV every day, twice a day, 10 times a day. When when the radio starts becoming more receptive to hip hop, plenty of artists go out there and make music that they think will appeal to radio audiences. So you have artists like the Fat Boys who are covering kind of like 1960s 
songs, which they think they're, you know, the sort of calculus that I think about is like, okay, you have the Fat Boys, some rappers, they're covering Chubby Checkers, the twist, so that you can get adults to be, you know, kind of tune their ears in when Chubby Checkers sings. But then you have the youths that can kind of, you know, tune in when the Fat Boys sing. And you get this kind of multi, this music for a multi-age audience, um, rather than music that was thought of as really particularly um, appealing to black urban youths. That's also a really, that totally makes me think. It's a very. It's also a very. Uh, that to- It's a very clever callback to another era of crossover appeal. Like if you, you're if you're Absolutely. sampling Chubby Checker yeah. in a hip hop song that you're trying to cross over. It also totally makes me think of these collaborations that were happening between hip hop artists and rock artists. And okay. you know, is that the same dynamic going on where you're? Um, you know, you're trying to appeal to maybe rock listeners and hip hop listeners with collaborations. Yeah, absolutely. So Walk This Way is like the most famous example of, you know, think, if you think about the music video to that song, you have, you know, Aerosmith on one side of the wall and Run DMC on the other side of the wall. And they're sort of like breaking down a physical barrier to appeal to these multi um, um, this multiracial audience. Yeah, 1986. This is... Exactly. This is like a very tried and true technique by this point. So throughout the 1980s, you get songs like Ebony and Ivory, right, where you have two artists coming together to appeal to um, a multiracial audience. This is like probably it's the it's it's the most tried and true crossover technique of the 1980s. And so it's no coincidence that by the eight, late 1980s, you have hip hop artists doing it as well. That's so wild. I mean, talking about 1986 and, and hearing about all of these things going on. And, um, and it's, you know, it's distressing too to think about um, music being so divided racially. Yeah. So yeah, for, um, for commercial purposes, what, what is, right? Like, they they yeah. they sliced it up and put it into boxes, um, just <laughs> just because of the money. Yeah. So like so with the shift, you know, you see these moments of rock and rap coming together or different generations coming together. Um, does this bode well for the radio, Amy, or and for the music? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's a that's a really hard question to answer. So I'll just. I'll kind of spin some some webs, right? Okay, so there is this idea floating around among mostly white commentators in the 1980s that the integration of musical taste is going to change the way people think about race, right? So that integration on playlists means more than just something about like what we want to stick in our ears. And I think that we've all come to understand that listening really does not like directly correlate to politics. That's just not something we really believe in anymore. Um, Jason Tans writes that like that music isn't a door that swings open between our two cultures, right? But that instead he he's talking about hip hop and he says, right, hip hop might be a revolving door, kind of endlessly spinning, allowing us to pass in opposite directions without ever actually touching. To me, radio is like a prime kind of it's a it's a prime hinge on that door, right? Is it a door that's opening or is it a door that's kind of spinning and never allowing people you know, people's racial attitudes to change. Um, And I think commercial radio stations, for the most part, 
I mean, it depends, right? Certain commercial radio stations do great kinds of community work. Many, many, many of these crossover stations and top 40 stations that become interested in playing hip hop really have no real investments in their local black communities. Um, they also take away some of the cultural, the cultural power of, um, from their local black oriented radio stations, right? So if you have a, a um, crossover station in the same community as a black oriented station, one of them is, is thought of as having more white listeners than the other. And so is going to be able to command higher advertising rates and is going to kind of have, right? They have a financial, they're, they're profiting off of their, you know, of their whiteness, essentially, right? And so by, and, and simultaneously playing hip hop, right? So the questions of kind of the economics of these, of these stations, um, to me really reveals the, I'm trying to say this without swearing too much, right? The, the, the way that, the way that we live in a, you know, the way that, the way that white supremacy is baked into the fabric of capitalism, I think is the easiest way to say that, right? That, that, that just because you start playing hip hop and just because you start appealing to this multiracial audience for the first time, wow, imagine that, right? Just because you do these things that on the surface look a little bit more progressive, that actually the places where money is changing hands, there's very little action that's happening there. It, yeah, it's it, it's upsetting to hear that. And and what, what ends up being... The implications of that for the black stations in a community, black owned stations in particular, if you have, if you have this going on with these, you know, top 40 stations that are playing black artists and trying to appeal to a wide range of listeners. So on an economic level, right, some black, black oriented stations do much better in these moments because they sort of double down on their community commitments. Other ones go out of business. From a musical perspective, I think this is really kind of key to understanding how hip hop evolves in the era in, you know, the years after this, is that this is a moment in which white gatekeepers or white cultural, um, you know, that, that the radio, right, white radio programmers command a significant amount of power over a black musical form. Prior to this moment, right, crossover began at black oriented radio, right? So they sort of controlled what music might become popular and then um, crossed over to top white top 40 audiences. Crossover stations really take the power out of the hands of black oriented stations at this moment. And, you know, will play music regardless of sort of the racial politics of that music. Hmm. And that's, I think what, um, Amy Coddington, I think what you're talking about is something I'm familiar with from cult, just from, <laughs> from listening to culture for my life, like that artists, black artists used to, um, succeed with black audiences first and then cross over to white audiences. So, um, and that, that took a certain, uh, overused word but a certain authenticity to succeed with white audiences you had to make it with the black audience first but is this a moment where where white tastemakers have more control over which black artists 
succeed? Is this, should we dump on young MC at this point, right? It's like, <laughs> I don't want to dump on anyone, but yes, I think, I think this is a moment where, where, where white people take control over black culture in a pretty specific way that then, I mean, so the, the kind of end point to my work is that I, you know, I end my book at about 1983, 1984, mm. and the big elephant in the room is going to be 19, or sorry, ni- not 1983. Mm. I end my book in 1993 or 1994. Um, and the big elephant in the room is that the Telecommunications Act is going to come two years later. Um, and the te- Telecommunications Act in particular really, really takes um, it, you know, in in, you know, Clear Channel owning all of the stations across the country, right? It takes ownership out of the hands of largely minority, um, you know, out of local minority owners. And so, um, you know, this, I'm sort of telling a prehistory. And as soon as 1996 rolls around, things are going to become much worse. That sounds like an entirely, you know, separate edition of Radio Survivor and a fascinating one, you know, or maybe a a second book, you know, to talk about, um, about that shift. And I mean, it, it, it brings to mind sort of this question about the changes that you were seeing, you know, prior to 1996. Do you think that was heralding positive changes for commercial radio? Like, Jennifer, are you positing, like, an alternate history? Is that the question that, like, that... Oh, okay. Sorry, that was a bad question. No, it's okay. Um, That's what I thought you were doing, because that's kind of the question that was in my head. Yeah, so imagine imagine if... um, Let's take the Telecommunications Act completely out of the picture, if that hadn't happened. Right. Um, with with the history that you're looking at with hip hop and commercial radio, um, do you think that would have led to sort of a positive um, commercial radio landscape? Um, did hip hop help commercial radio up to that point? So Look the, into your crystal ball. <laughs> the part of the story that I'm not telling yet is the is what happens kind of right after MC Hammer blows up or sort of right as MC Hammer blows up. So right, think about 1990 maybe as our pivot point here. Immediately, as soon as hip hop becomes starts becoming part of the sound of top 40 stations, people get pretty pissed off. Um, and there's lots of anecdotes of listeners calling the station and saying like, what, what's that? You know, what are you playing? Right. Like you need to stop playing that. And and stations within the top 40 format, also within the adult contemporary format, begin advertising themselves based on their lack of rap. Right. So these are this are sort of a as soon as you get the bubbling up of this crossover format, you get the a similar format in the rock direction. Right. So stations that are defined that are trying to play sort of halfway in between top 40 and rock music. So they're not playing any hip hop. And then you get these stations that are sort of halfway in between top 40 and adult contemporary. And what they're really interested in is not playing rap. Um, They're advertising themselves as no rap stations. And you have this huge, a kind of complete fragmentation of the top 40 format into by 1994, it's thought of that there were like five different top 40 formats that Billboard is tracking. Um, And this, I think, moment for me, right, hip hop becomes kind of the wedge. People think about hip hop as the wedge at this moment. I'm not sure that hip hop is the wedge, 
Um, there's plenty of alternate ways that this could have gone. But within the radio industry, this is a moment in which Top 40 really changes its identity. Um, and I think, I mean, if you drive around the country enough like I do listening to Top 40 radio, now you will notice that it's just the same now, right? So you'll have stations that will, for example, edit, you know, they'll play the version of Taylor Swift without Kendrick Lamar's verse. And then you'll have ones that play the Kendrick Lamar's verse, right? And and so you have this kind of fragmentation of the top 40. And, you know, for me, I love top 40 radio. I'm a real sucker for the idea that top 40 could be this place where um, this is a phrase Eric Weisbard uses when he talks about top 40, right? Where he says that like um, social outsiders can become symbolic insiders. It's the place that black artists have throughout the 20th century found space to appeal to white audiences, right? These are, it's in some ways throughout the 20th century, top 40 has been one of the most kind of like, I'm not, I don't want to use the word progressive when we talk about top 40, right? But it's an inclusive space in many ways, right? You just have to get popular enough to be played on it. And I think that at the, at the, you know, in the 1990s, top 40 turns from being this inclusive space to being um, pretty reactionary against Mm. hip hop. Yeah. And I should say the black artists and the black consumers associated with it. Amy Coddington, we're we're talking today on Radio Survivor um, about your research and, and your focus um, about you know hip hop, the music genre, and radio, mostly like top forty radio and how how they how they interacted in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. What do you think um, as we conclude the, for the radio program? What do you think the radio audience should know? What is like one of the what yeah? What is the lesson? For, for people, what are what what was missing from like uh, the conventional wisdom of like what hip hop and radio meant to each other in this era? So one of the things that I like to think about in my research is a reaction to right in in many ways my react my in some ways my rea- my research is a reaction to a quote right it's a Chuck D quote from you know this song Radio Suckers Never Play Me. From that, it's a 1987 by 1987 song by Public Enemy, and part of what I want to say is like, no, radio actually did play a significant amount of hip hop. So by 1990, um, top 40 playlists are about 25 per- uh, about 25 percent of songs on top 40 playlists have some sort of rapped vocals in them, whether that's a short little verse, right, where the bridge used to be in the 1980s. Maybe they've inserted a rapped verse. Maybe the whole thing's rap. Who knows? But by 1990, radio was playing a ton of rap. And part of what I want to think about in my research is is what that does, right? So if we move hip-hop into thinking about it as part of, as a commodity, right? As part of the commercial radio industry, as part of the way that, you know, things that radio stations make money, I think that tells us a lot about people's attitudes towards hip-hop and also maybe helps hold the radio industry accountable for many of the things that hip-hop has become. And not to say that hip-hop has become anything bad, but simply to kind of illustrate the ways that radio, the, um, that the business model of the radio industry has influenced hip-hop up until the present era. 
Amy Connington, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Survivor today. Fascinating to learn about your work. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we get to keep going in the in podcast. I know. Um, well, okay. I have to push back on. Well, not push back, but like you used Chuck D's quote, and to me, oh boy, because of my unique life, and it's like instead of doing research and taking it seriously, I've just like been a consumer of music, and I am the age that I am. I grew up. I grew up listening to the things I listen to because of because of the person. So this is all just like stuff I know and not stuff I <laughs> stuff I have any right to know is right or wrong. It's uh so but because because of being a Gen X listener and and having the privilege of of hearing hip hop grow into what it became, I know that like there was always in especially in the nineties like a there was a theme in hip hop that Chuck D was uh, saying in that lyric where it's like there were certain songs that weren't going to get played on the radio and and or there was certain kinds of um, there are certain artists who weren't getting the radio play and at, at the time in the 90s that became known as like conscious rap right at, like that there was that um, that a certain kind of party attitude would get radio play but then um chuck d's radical politics you know black liberation politics wouldn't get played on the radio yeah that's a great question um in there too about what was what kind of rap and hip-hop was getting played and what kind wasn't getting played on the radio Uh, yeah i mean it's it's exactly what you say here that there's a I mean, and, and to me, one of the interesting things about this early 1990s period is this is this is a moment where rappers really have to choose which way they want to go, right? So there's plenty, all these rappers that all of a sudden need to say, oh boy, well, I could become really famous, right? I could become a top 40 star, or I could just, or I could do this other thing, right? I could be played on college stations. I could be played on community stations. I could just do live shows for the rest of my life, right? Whatever these things are, there's the, a kind of sense that you have to choose one route or the other. And that in choosing one of these routes, it becomes, right, it, it's a musical choice. You know, you're going to use different sampling techniques. You're going to mm-hmm. use different samples, Um but it's also a kind of community choice that you're aligning yourself with a certain type of community. And I think that many artists who became big, I mean, MC Hammer, I think is a great, ex- I just love using him as an example, yeah. but MC Hammer, you know, sort of after the peak of his popularity, he all of a sudden is like, oh, bo- oh no, like I, I still want to, I don't, I don't want to just be like, the guy who raps for white audiences, I want to be, I want to like appeal to black kids. And so what does he do? He sends out 600,000 cassette tapes to kids in my, you know, majority minority communities Hmm. um, to try and win back some of these listeners. So there's this big debate of the, you know, the authenticity question I think is key here. And authenticity is really related to your relationship to the radio industry and particularly radio audiences. Some of that also makes me think about, you know, you mentioned earlier, Amy, that there are radio stations that might play a particular version of a song. And, you know, artists and record labels were clearly sending out LPs that were marked radio edit and then 
you know, LPs to consumers that might not have been a radio edit. So editing out bad words, you know, making it easier for radio to play their work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is Paula Abdul's song Opposites Attract, right? So on the single version, there is no rap in there, but in the music video, right, because you're able to play that, you know, for primarily younger audiences on MTV, there is a rap in there, right? And it's a rap by a cartoon cat, which is its whole other thing, right? Yes. (laughs) Right, but that's a, that's a, you know, there's, there's all sorts of negotiations happening um, in the throughout the 1990s, where record companies are trying to kind of right, they're they're trying to make something for everybody, and you'll see this, um, you know, on basically any single that's put out. You need the top 40 version, you need the adult top 40 version, you need the adult contemporary top 40 for, or top adult contemporary version. NBC superstar talk show host Amber Ruffin, who is I think 40 years old, which is important, just did a TV rant that's available on YouTube and link in the show notes when I do my job um, complaining about all of the rap verses that were cut out of the radio edits of her favorite songs starting with um, Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls which absolutely I yep. guess they, that's a, a classic example yeah and 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 apparent and Amber Ruffin's uh, thesis is that they were lying when they said it was just cut for time but they that they cut it for other reasons, nefarious reasons, cutting out um, the rap verse in this uh, otherwise very successful crossover radio hit. Yeah, I'm. I'm just gonna look up this example really yeah. quickly because it's a great one. So let me just give me That's two fine. seconds. We're now on the podcast, like so we can just blanking. Um, it's okay just to go okay. a little more informal with uh, with our chat. Yeah, I can't. So, I, will, I, I will mention that just as you look up your thing that. MC Hammer can't touch this crossover gigantic hit. And then MC Hammer, the Adams Family Values theme song. You could just feel the balloon pop when his and whatever whatever <laughs> authenticity, there's that word again. But it's if it just it was gone. And then he uh started rapping uh like preach rap. And then he was gone for a little while. But MC Hammer's a wonderful... But, you know, I happen to know that uh, still beloved in Oakland as, like, a real person who... who still, is, you know, yeah, wasn't like, like Bay a Area fave, yeah. Yeah, wasn't a manufactured, <laughs> right. like, cultural product, you know, born in a lab to sell records. Like, a real artist from Oakland um, that black people... Uh, uh, you know the, the black people liked before white people yes yeah okay can't find the good example oh. <laughs> i'm sorry that's okay i well, mean i'm like looking but it's like you know it, what with, did it mean to with you? that Why and my brain for it oh it's just oh, a, so it's sorry. a great example of like no it's okay it's like it's like one of these radio edits that that oh, okay. a record company puts out so they get rid of the rap and then people are like no we're still not playing that song right because it's like associated somehow with rap mm. but don't worry about it okay funny um, yeah it's such an interesting time for music and then we didn't touch the word gangster rap today in the radio <laughs> in the radio edit of today's episode but like where does gangster rap fit in all this because it gets radio yeah, so, play, huge radio play, but at first it doesn't, right? 
Yeah, I mean the one a great story is like the way that you know Snoop Dogg and Rich originally gets played on the radio is that they his record company takes out one minute advertisements and plays the song as that advertisement. And then so many people right call to request it because they want to hear it. Gin so juice, right? yeah, gangster rap I think is yeah yeah I'm assuming um it, I think yeah 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 exactly yeah so um. So gangster rap's an important kind of pivot point again in this narrative because it's both really embraced by many crossover stations, right? So Power 106, which um, its sister station is Hot 97 in New York, right? The most important um, radio state, hip-hop radio station in the country for most, um, you know, arguably the most important one to this day. Um, Power 106 starts playing a lot of gangster rap and starts getting a ton of complaints from the community because they don't want to, um, because there's, you know, like there are words and topics that um, black community members really don't want um, played on the radio, such as the N word. Um, And K powers response to this, I think is really telling. So they don't bleep anything off the, you know, they don't bleep their songs for a really long time until there's um, a uh, until you know the protests come to a head and there's threats of boycotting advertisers that advertise on the radio wow. station and eventually right and their their rationale is that they say you know we want to play we play the music that appeals to the widest multiracial audience in LA, right? Who are we to say what, you know, the multiracial audience doesn't want to hear? And I think this is a great moment of sort of showing the tensions between, you know, a station that really prides itself on appealing to, you know, its business model is appealing to a multiracial audience and yet largely neglecting the concerns of local black community members. Yeah, that's such a crazy example that, I mean, it it's not surprising that when economics comes in and they're worried about losing money, then they suddenly listen to audience members who are, you know, deeply offended by the language Abs- used. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all down to the money. I know. So, so if you look at radio today, I mean, I think I know the answer. Where, where are we going to hear hip hop and how is it different from, say, the beginning of this story? So you'll certainly hear it on top 40 stations, but, you know, there are also all of these other stations that are explicitly designed to play hip hop, right? So some of these do come out of the crossover stations. These are stations that to this day, you know, still play hip hop. Hot 97 is a great example of this. Um, You know, these are hip hop R&B stations and um, largely in urban areas, Um, You also have this huge development of throwback hip hop stations, which I think is really key to understanding how the radio commercial radio industry works. Right. So there's all these people like us. I don't want to age us or anything. Right. But like people that now are thought of as valuable consumers who might be willing to buy a new car or might be, you know, buying these big ticket items that also really liked hip hop as you know, teenagers in our 20s. And so 
the creation of stations designed for, you know, people from age 30 to 45 who like hip hop, that's a brand new thing that really, you know, they're, they're trying to, um, you know, come, they're trying to develop audiences based on their love of, you know, not today's hip hop, but the old stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's such a wide, you know, hip hop is such a wide genre now. It's all, it's all encompassing. So that makes sense that you would have these segmentations within hip hop and different audiences for different types of hip hop. We didn't talk about it in the body, but it's like, it's worth mentioning that like, um, like the, the introduction of a more spoken style of lyrical delivery over the beat was way it's a little bit ridiculous that that (laughs) broke people's brains in the 80s and that at this stage 40 years later it's kind of no longer necessary to say if somebody is rapping that that's rap music it's actually like rapping and singing are literally crossing over like it's the same thing now more or less it, and and in in the future that's just going to be how it's heard like it's it's you know if you take um uh as a terrible example but in my to me billy eilish is 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 sort of the epitome of the hip-hop singer that's not hip-hop um it's you know she's 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 singing over beats that are hip hop beats but it's just crossover music that you know it's all it's all going to be fuzzed up from na- from here on out but then there's still um but I don't, there was a time where like just the sound of rapping over a beat like hurt some people's or excited right either young people got excited about hearing it like thought like it was the most the best thing they'd ever heard and old people thought it was the worst thing they ever heard. And it's very funny that, 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 that like worked itself through the culture for 15, well, 28, 30 years before it's sort of starting to starting to change. And now I Eric, guess, I mean, oh you're making God. me think of, go, go ahead. You're making me think of early examples too, though, of, of, of things like wham rap, which, you know, that's so bizarre to think about it because that had to have been, what, 1985 or earlier? And, it's earlier, yeah. It's like uh, 82, 83. And, Why you know, that this, Wham? the band Wham, which is, you know, <laughs> right. this white band had a song called Wham Rap they where they're rapping. Right. Or, and so did Blondie, right? And it was a joke. Yeah. And Blondie, so there were, well, and that Blondie song is great. Um, yes. Yeah, so how does that fit in? Like, how, Amy, how do we get from there to Billie Eilish? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I... I <laughs> it's, uh, this is that would take days to explain. I mean, I, th- yeah. I think there's like a lot of strands, you know, running through this. But I think key to what we're talking about here is a sense of hip hop's both its, you know, its kind of universality, right? That like, whoa, Blondie can rap, right? It's just talking over a beat, but also it's like particular identification with Black American culture, um, and I think that you know. Like the reason we're bringing up all these examples is because they're people that are, you know, 
are that are, you know, messing with our sense of like, oh, who should do what and who can do what. And I think that hip hop really, right, the, the thing that is so interesting to me about it is it's both, right, it, it's completely mainstream and yet it's not, right, it's like not for everyone, right? And those two things to me are, you know, that, like that contradiction is, is so key to understanding the music. <laughs> 